This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, our first reading this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 11, verses 37 to 46. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm now going to invite uh, two of the Cranbrook School captains, uh, Jordan Baggs of Rawson House and Angus Heyman uh, from Street House, to come and share the second reading with us. Uh, the second reading today comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and chapter 3, verse 9 to 20. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's ju judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing God seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be the wrath, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good. First the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. Chapter 3. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. 
for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open, gra open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poisons of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we, we become conscious of our sin. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, Mr. Faraway. And uh, I'd just like to repeat the warm welcome uh, to those who've joined us from the staff, uh, the students and parents of Cranbrook. It's great to see you here. Uh, let's pray as we uh, get into this passage here. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you have uh, your Bible open in front of you, or that uh, passage that we just had read for us, which is in the order of service, and the, or, the, uh, the outline of the sermon, uh, which you should have received on the way in the door in front of you, uh, that would really help. So it'd be great to have those there. But today I have a very difficult task, because I have to explain to you that the Bible is telling you something that you intuitively find very hard to believe. I have to tell you that you're not good. Now, last week, I said that we are used to dividing the world into two basic categories, good people and bad people. But most of us tend to think we're in which one? We, we think we're in the good category. We may have done bad things, but if that's so, we're essentially uh, good people who have made mistakes. As a counsellor once said to my brother, who was a very naughty boy, uh, he said, you're a good boy who's done bad things. George R. R. Martin, the author of Game of Thrones, once said, nobody is a villain in their own story. We're all the heroes of our own stories. You can tell this is true, because even people who by all human standards are very bad still believe that they are very good. Al Capone, the notorious Chicago gangster of the 20s and 30s, said after he was arrested and put in prison for tax evasion, though he, of course, had been guilty of many, many murders and extortion and corruption in all sorts of ways, he said this, I've spent the best years of my life, that's my sort of really bad godfather impression, giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them have a good time, and all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. He thought he was a philanthropist. That is to say, to put it in another way, Darth Vader thinks he's Luke Skywalker, if you see what I mean. The belief in our own righteousness makes us very judgmental of others because we find it so easy to see how everyone else has got it wrong, doesn't, don't we? Now, we now live in a brutally judgmental culture. I think we're more brutally judgmental than we ever were before. In fact, I think this just increases. We, we love it when someone else falls from grace, don't we? So we can just pile on. It makes us good, feel good, 
to know that someone else is bad. It bolsters our own deep belief in our righteousness. You only have to spend an afternoon on Twitter to see this in action, and I certainly wouldn't recommend that. But today, what I want you to do is to put down the psychological protection mechanism of believing in your own goodness and consider what Paul the Apostle is saying to us here. There is no one righteous, he says, not even one. Now, that's not the whole story. Paul's got some very good news. In fact, he's clearing the ground for us so that we can see the good news, clearing the fog away so we can see the top of the mountain. But unless we see how deep our need for rescue is, we won't see how great our salvation in Jesus Christ is. Now, in chapter 1, I'm up to point 2 now, no excuse for hypocrisy. In chapter 1, as we saw last week, Paul casts his eye over human civilization. All he can see is the catastrophic results of the rejection of the true God. God has been cancelled by human beings. He's been no-platformed, censored, if you will. The truth about him has been suppressed. and People have instead exchanged worship of him for worship of the false gods that we've concocted from our own imaginations. And God, what's his response? He's given us what we want. He's given us the freedom that we seek. We want to run our own lives our own way without him. Fine, says God. See how it goes then. And how has it gone? We suppress the truth about God. We exchange worship of him for worship of idols that we, you know, we prefer. And he gives us over to our own mess. But there would have been people sitting in Paul's audience who had been sitting there all the while nodding. Yes, that's right. Sock it to them, Paul. You tell them. You tell them that they're really awful, those people out there. Beyond the pale, the cesspit of humanity. Disgraceful in every regard. Lucky I'm not part of that. Chapter 1 is them, but it's not us. Now, this would have seen, been seen in Paul's first audience as a division among, along racial lines. Paul imagines that the Jewish members of the church in Rome were those in particular who did not think of themselves as addressed in that first chapter of Romans. Now, this is how Paul, a Jewish man himself, had thought before he met Christ. After all, he said, the Jews had the law of God. They were the chosen people of God, the precious possession of God. They had the sign of circumcision that marked them out from other nations like a spiritual tattoo. But here's the shock for them. It's the shock for us as well. Paul turns the they into a you. You thought there were two categories, says Paul, but there is only one. This is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. If anyone had been in self-congratulation mode, forget about it. You're not exempt from the verdict against humanity here. Is it not the case that you do the same things yourself? Now, a sad fact of history is that over the past two millennia, many non-Jewish Christians have twisted Paul's words around here 
and use them to bolster their own sense of smugness and hypocrisy by seeing their Jewish neighbours as the bad guys. This is warped beyond belief. One of the most absurd things is that Christians would be anti-Semitic. But ironically, it's a sad illustration of Paul's point. It's why we need to feel the force of the switch from the they of chapter 1 to the you here in chapter 2. Yes, you means you. If you're feeling morally superior to anyone else, forget it. As Paul says in verses 2 and 3, don't you know that God judges in truth? And so, do you imagine that you will escape? Since the fruit of your rebellion against God is the fruit, that fruit is in your life as well. If God is kind to you, if life goes well for you, it's not because you are righteously deserving, somehow better than others, but so that you get the message of God's kindness and turn to Him. See, the basic reality is that God is the judge of human beings. And it is not judge as we judge. And and thank goodness for that, by the way. God is the God of justice. And he judges based on what we have done. Not on the basis of our racial background or our social status. There will be a day, says Paul, in which God will enact his righteous judgment. He will be completely impartial on that day. As Paul puts it, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In other words, everyone. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For, this is his punchline, isn't it? God does not show favouritism. Unpopular as it might be seen to speak of the judgement of God, this is actually very good news for two reasons. The first is this. It means that you and I live in a morally consequential universe. What a relief to know that there is, in the order of things, in the DNA of the universe, as it were, right down to the atoms, a right and a wrong, that these are not simply matters of taste or fashion or power. Evil does not go unanswered. It will not. God will not fail to hear the cries of the oppressed, and the victims of our world. He has not forgotten. He will not let the powerful who do evil go unanswered. Even the grave does not protect the evildoer. Nobody simply gets away with it, ultimately, because God is a God of justice, and he will judge, and thank goodness for that. But secondly, it means that human judgment does not have the last word. Now, our judgments are full of favouritisms and partialities. We always favour our own. Just to take one example, an academic study of basketball referees in the NBA, America, over 13 seasons discovered that white referees called significantly more fouls against black players than against white players. Now, it wasn't that the referees were overtly racist, but that they had a subconscious bias against people who did not look like them. And so they judged accordingly. And this same finding was discovered far more seriously in the US court system. Even with good intentions, human justice is not blind. We depict justice as blindfolded 
because we want it to be. And yet human justice, again and again, is not blind, it is partial. Our judgments, too, are prone to faddishness. The moral argument you most hear these days is, well, it's the 21st century, as if matters of right and wrong are like hairstyles. And yet mullets do come back into fashion. We show favouritism to the powerful and to the fashionable. What good news it is to hear that this is not how the world itself ends. God does not favour one race over another. All he sees is what we are really like, not what we seem to be. Now, I haven't printed out what Paul then says in verses 12 of chapter 2 to verses eight, verse 8 in chapter 3. It's a middle section that we've cut out because otherwise it would be really long reading. But up to point four, I'm up to point 4, here's the gist of what he's saying there. Now, having the law, because people would say, look, look, aren't, don't we have the law? Don't we, the Jews, have the law of God? I mean, isn't that some advantage? And he says, yes, it's a privilege to have that. But having it is not the same as doing it. Knowing the right thing to do is not the same as doing it. What ultimately matters is keeping the law of God. Paul never denies that his own people, the Jews, were chosen by God to be a light to the nations and that they had a particular place in the purposes and plans of God. But he he points to their own scriptures, which say the point of the law is to keep it, not just to have it. You can only keep it with a changed heart. Now, that's a bit of a problem, as we'll see. We're judged on keeping the law of God, yet no one, not the most pagan of Gentiles, the most learned of religious teachers, has kept it. We'll come back to that. But Paul wants to push here. What he wants to push here is that the outward signs of belonging to God don't count if there isn't an inward reality to back it up. For the Jews, circumcision was the great sign of belonging to God. Strange it may seem to us, but this was like a great national spiritual tattoo, a mark on the body that sets you apart. But you could have that outward sign and none of the inward reality. It's exactly like a wedding ring. This ring is an outward sign of my marriage to Catherine. But if I were to behave in a way which was the complete opposite of my wedding vows then this token would be meaningless. It has no power in itself. Worse, it would be an outright lie. Likewise, you can have all the outward signs of belonging to God. You can be christened an Anglican even. You can go to an Anglican school. You can memorize the Lord's Prayer. You can wear a cross around your, your neck. You can dress in religious clothing and call yourself reverend. You can have a fish sticker on your car. And yet these are empty if there's no inward spiritual reality. Paul says, he says, a person is not a Jewish person who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. To quote a motto, a familiar motto to the boys who are here, you have to... Be, not just seem to be. Sorry, I've forgotten the Latin. The only question then is, is anyone actually righteous? 
Well, so what's the bottom line then? We move to verse 9 of chapter 3. Well, here it is in verse 9. He says, We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. That's Jews and non-Jews. That's everyone in the world, all human beings. We are all, he says, under the power, under a power, under the power of sin. Now, it's not just that we all sin, we all do the wrong thing. It's that we've become enslaved to its power. We cannot escape it. And we're all in the same boat. And if you don't believe me from the evidence of your eyes looking around at history, if you don't believe me, then have a look at the Jewish Bible, he says. And he pulls together this list of quotations from the Psalms to illustrate. That's in verses 10 through to 18. And it's a pretty devastating list of quotations, isn't it? It's like a hammer. It's like a nail going into a door, just one blow after the other. There is no one righteous, he says, not even one. You may have noticed that this introduces a bit of a problem here because, firstly, we've heard God judges justly on the basis of our good works or on the basis of our evil. But also, Paul is saying here that there is no one righteous, not even one, since we're all under this power, the power of sin. So where does that leave us? This is what he points out in verse 20. Therefore... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So we're on the horns of a dilemma. How will anyone be declared righteous? Is there any hope at all? Now I get, by the way, that you may not accept one or both of these propositions. First of all, you may not think there is a divine judgment of any kind. You can't imagine that God would be, so, would, be so, would be like that. And really, it's up to us to decide what is right and wrong. And perhaps maybe that's because for you, God doesn't exist. Or maybe it's because you don't think God really cares that much about what human beings do. Secondly, you may not accept that we're in, all in the same boat. You may think that this judgment is too absolute, too harsh, too pessimistic. You may still believe there are good people over here and bad people over there. But can I urge you to give some thought to this? Do we live in a world of moral consequences or is it just a brutally unfair place? And is, is it not the case that human beings, all of us, are flawed? Don't even the Ten Commandments act like a mirror for our conscience here? And what do you see when you look in that mirror? Well, where does that leave us? Can we cope with the reframing of our self-definition that we find here in these verses? Can we cope with the shock of it? Actually, it's a really good thing for us to get what Paul's saying here in many ways. It's been good for our society to recognise how biased and broken and blind that human beings can be, that we can be. Both democracy and the scientific method are successful because they begin not by trusting human beings, even ourselves. In fact, the scientific method and democracy have their beginnings 500 years ago under the influence of the Reformation, where the words of these, these very words were unleashed once more. And we, we learnt not to trust those who were in power. We learnt that human beings are prone to doing what they want to do, that we shouldn't trust them, not even ourselves. And this 
inside, as I say, gained by reading these parts of, of the Bible, are so vital to our functioning as a society today. In our more narcissistic age, we tend to have forgotten them. The Bible humbles us. It tells us to beware our own distorted judgments and to beware our tendency to believe that we are right and that we are in the right. We should be so much more hesitant to condemn others. Even as we speak the truth about right and wrong, which we must do, for we must, we must judge. We must point out where there is wrong and there is right and where there is injustice in the world, but we should not do those as, the, as those who are above reproach ourselves. How could we? But here's what Paul really wants us to get. He's been clearing the ground for his great message, his good news. He's not a moralist wagging his forbidding finger at us and telling us to pull up our moral socks, you naughty children. Quite the opposite, since he's included himself in this picture. Instead, he's hoping that we'll see the conundrum that we're in under the power of sin, unable to be declared righteous by our own efforts, by the works of the law. For all, he says, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet this is precisely why the news of Jesus is so darn good. Because what Paul is about to announce, and next week it, it, oh, it really becomes clear for him, so do come back. Don't leave us just today. Come back next. You have to come for those remarkable verses, three, chapter 3, 21 to 31, next week to hear what he's got to say in, in full. But what Paul is going to announce to us is that even though we're not the good people we tend to think we are, that God loves us and has the power to save us, a greater power than the powers of sin and death. For even while we were still sinners, remarkable though it is, God showed his great love for us in Jesus Christ. We all alike are under the deadening power of sin. But the gospel is the resurrection power of God in Jesus Christ. The power of God for the salvation of all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. With this good news, received by faith, we can have transformed hearts. The transformed hearts that we so sorely need so that we can please our Heavenly Father, do the things that glorify and honour Him. Paul knew it personally. He'd seen it in himself when Jesus Christ entered into his own heart and transformed him. And he'd seen people of all kinds alike transformed by the grace of God to live lives full of love for others, full of gratitude to God, lives that actually please him. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.